Hey guys, Craig here. Um, welcome to episode 51 of my little podcast, the Bass Lessons Melbourne Player Profile Podcast. And um, I can't really believe that my guest on this week's episode is Leland Sklar. Like only a few weeks ago, he was sitting right next to me in this room where I'm uh, recording this intro to this podcast. Um, quite surreal and an absolute honor and a privilege for me to hang out and chat with somebody um, like Leland Sklar. If you don't know who he is, just check out some of his credits. It might take you a while to get through them all, but he's played bass for, I mean, everybody. Toto, James Taylor. He was on um, Billy Cobham's album Spectrum. Um, just thousands and thousands of albums and tours. Uh, he was on the in the house band for the most recent Grammys show, I think he was telling me as well. Um, and he's a super nice guy. Like, really nice guy. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not all just about playing the bass, I'm guessing. You know, if you want to keep working um, to, you know, the age that Leland is, then being a nice guy goes a long way. A nice person goes a long way, I should say. Um, so yeah, massive thanks to, to Leland for agreeing to be on the show. Um, he had a day off, he was in town with Phil Collins, and um, he messaged me saying he had a day off, and he would be happy to, to catch up. So um, I was like, okay, um, do you want me to come and do it? You know, shoot this in the hotel room or whatever? And he said, no, nah, he was pretty happy to get out of the hotel room for a few hours. So. Um, I went and picked him up at his hotel and brought him back to my house. Yeah, he's um, an animal lover, so he enjoyed hanging out with my cat, Jackson. He bonded pretty quickly. Um, yeah, and you took him down to the beach, got him a hot chocolate, just hanging out with Leland's Clark, as you do. So still pinch myself that, um, that he's on the Bass Lessons Melbourne podcast. And I really hope that you guys enjoy this interview. It's a long one, but um, I mean, it could have gone on for a couple of days, really, when you think about uh, Lee's career and all his experience through uh, through the music industry and and life. So, uh, yeah, episode fifty-one is Leland Sklar, and as always, I got to thank my sponsors. Fbase, um, www.fbase.com, who have been handcrafting guitars and basses for over 40 years with classic and contemporary inspired designs. So go and check them out if you're uh, in the market for a new bass. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, tea, juice, beer, whatever your tipple is, and enjoy this episode with the mighty Lee Sklar. Thanks for listening.
Hey guys, how's everybody doing? This is Craig from Bass Lessons Melbourne and today I am joined by the one and only Leland Sklar. I'm proud to be here with you. Uh, it's a privilege, man, to have it's you great. in my house next to me. And we're in, in Melbourne. In Melbourne. Is, I love Melbourne. Yeah. So this is perfect. And, uh, and it's not 400 degrees, which is always a bonus today. Yeah, it's beautiful out. Yeah. We should be in on a, on a little mats in the water bobbing around talking right now. Next time, yeah. Next, Next time, time. we'll get the paddling pro. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and obviously, you're in town with Phil Collins. Yeah. We got two on shows. The, uh, the Not Dead Yet tour. Yeah, it was actually the most perfectly named tour because everybody like thought he was dead. Yeah. And, uh, and he disappeared he, he, he's for like had a 10 few years. kind of like final tours, isn't he? Well, we did the first final farewell tour, which was back in the in early 2000, around 2004. So preemptive, maybe. Um, well, we had bigger plans for that tour. Um, we were supposed to do uh, Africa, Southeast Asia. Whole bunch of stuff. The the, um, the essence of that tour was to go places we had never been. Right. So we were touring like east, the old East Bloc, like Estonia, oh, wow. Latvia, and we were up in Finland. Um, went to the Middle East with it, but at the same time, they were in getting ready to start production of Tarzan on Broadway, mm -hmm. and the producers of the show insisted Phil be there for the rehearsals, and that was the time we were supposed to be in Africa, and so. so we had to cancel like half the tour, oh. so he could just sit there. You know, I mean, every, every, it, it it is what it is. Mm. I mean, it was a big deal for him to be in, involved, but it kind of put everybody, you know, out on the street. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it so and by the time that was done, he had really was just kind of tired. Mm. He just said, said he wanted. He had two little kids um, from his his uh, last marriage and um, really wanted just to be a stay-at-home dad. And uh, so he announced his retirement, and, yeah. um, and then things didn't quite turn out the way they wanted in terms of, of his personal life. But um, he just, uh, I, th I think Nicholas, his older son, he was about four when we were touring, and I think as the boys got older, they said, you know, we never really got to see what you do. Mm. And so around 2004, he said, I'm going to hit it again, I'm doing this for, for the kids. Yeah. And, uh, and we went out and we had a, you know, just a, a great time. Um, yeah. Oh, no, 2004 is when we called it. Um, a couple of years ago um, is when we decided to come back out. And it was right. almost a 10 year, Ten -year uh, lapse in, yeah. in his performing. Did he do a Motown album? In he did a Motown album and, and, and limited tour where he had like a bunch of the guys that um, were from Standing in the Shadows. So he had like Bob Babbitt playing bass ah. and stuff. So it was a mixture of guys. Um, and it was it was cool. I mean, it was something yeah. he really he really loves. You know, exactly. American Motown music. Yeah. So uh, that was and that was and I think after that, I think in two thousand seven they did a, a Genesis tour. Okay. And that was really kind of the end of it. So we were all really shocked when Phil contacted us um, a couple of years ago and said, "Yeah, I think I'm going to do it again." Yeah. And uh, we started thinking about the band, and and uh, Chester Thompson was no longer going to be doing it. And so we started talking drummers, and Phil lives in Miami, 
and uh, Jason Bonham lives in Miami, so he, and he's known Jason since he was a little kid. So we had Jason come and audition for it, and, so, <laughs> and some of the stuff <coughs> was amazing with him, really good. Um, but it just wasn't the right fit, and, mm. and Jason said it. You know, it was a great hang and everything. But we um, ended up uh, basically auditioning Nicholas, his seven, Phil's seventeen-year-old son, and he killed it. I mean, he's been a good drummer since he was. He, there's a, a video called "The Long Good Night." Um, mm. It's available. It's on YouTube. It's our last tour that we did, and it's this documentary film, and there's some music in it, but it's basically about the whole concept be behind going to all the places that we hadn't been and all this. And every night in Phil's dressing room, there was a little drum set set up, and like we'd come off stage and all you'd hear is... <laughs> and Phil would be going, Just oh, God. God. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Nick in there practicing, and Nick would sit every sound check watching Phil and Chester and really knew. he. I mean, it's, you walk into a four-year-old and say, play me something, he goes, ah, ah, you know, it's like he knew how to groove. And so, so we auditioned him basically for this tour, and Phil said, look, he's my son, but on the tour he's a musician. Mm. So, I mean, if you don't think this is going to work, you know, tell me. Yeah. And, um, and we all gave a total thumbs up on him. Wow. And in the two years we've been on the road now, his growth is staggering yeah. as a player. I mean, he was good when we started. He's really, really good at this point. What a way to start And he was 16 when we yeah, started. That's you know, insane. So he'll be 18 in a few months or something. But, wow. Um, Old enough to drink here, nearly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, it's such a treat to, to be on stage playing and just turn around and look, and there's, there's Nick behind yeah. me. And he, when we're in the dressing room, we, he loves stories about the business. He's like a sponge yeah. man taking it all. As in. he should be, you know. Yeah, and he sits there with his practice pad, and he's like, you've got oh, serious wow. chops. And he's got his own band in Miami. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, this is very different music than, than Phil's music. Yeah. But, um, but he really wants to be a consummate musician, so he's like learning everything he can and questioning well, everything. Well, if you can, if you can cut this gig. Yeah, it's just kind of where do you go? I mean, we're, we're going through South America playing 60,000 seat stadiums yeah. and stuff. Anything and else you, is going to be yeah, you go. <laughs> But, you know, I always tell him, I said, you know, I've played, you know, for 700,000 people and a million people gigs, all that stuff. I said, still some of the most fun I have is playing a pub. Yeah. So, you know, don't, don't, there isn't that whole thing about, you know, the bigger the gig is, the more important it is. I said, yeah. there's something. You can, you can still only see, what, 10 rows in? Yeah, I mean, every gig <laughs> is the same. But when you've got people that are like, you can hear them breathing and you can talk to them and bullshit yeah. with them during the show. And you spill the drink on your pedals. And, yeah. yeah, been there. <laughs> been there. So uh, I love being with Nick and the whole band is great. So we're having an absolute fabulous time and we got... More work coming up this year. We've already got our, our European tour for the summer going, mm. and they're talking more work after that. And uh, as much as he wants to work, I'll be right there if he calls me. Is is the Phil Collins thing the closest thing you would maybe have to being in your own band, so to speak? Um, maybe a, uh, there might be an element of that. Um, but the, the few bands that I've done has really been our material. 
and right. and uh, and we're we're more vested not as sidemen but as as sure, you're still playing, equal members. You're still playing some DLC music, yeah. I guess. Where like I'm I'm in a band now called the Immediate Family, mm-hmm. and um, what happened with that was Danny Cooch Korchmar. Um, got a Japanese record deal a couple of years, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, two years ago. And um, it, uh, it, it was one of those things where he decided to do this record. He just called me and Russ Kunkel and Wadi Wachtel and just like the old gang. Yeah. And we cut it at Jackson Brown Studio in Los Angeles. And uh, then we went to Japan for two weeks and, and gig. we were doing gigs, some gigs around L.A. just to get this thing moving. Mm-hmm. And then went to Japan and the reception was unbelievable. We cut a live album that's just been released over there cool. and we're heading back in May. And we're kind of calling, looking at ourselves as like the ultimate cover band <laughs> because everything we're doing, we either wrote, played on or produced. And so it's like... With Wadi, he he did so much with Zevon. So it's got we're doing like Werewolves of London and Johnny Strikes Up the Band and 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 Cooch wrote lots with Don Henley and produced him. So we're doing Dirty Laundry and All She Wants to Do is so the whole show is like all these recognizable songs, but we weren't the artists that did them. Yeah, we were yeah. backing there, so now we are the artists and the right. band singing and everything. So it's 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 fun and we're we're getting really uh, great response to this so that that feels more like my band sure. kind of situation or when we had the section together or <clears throat> when I was in a group called Barefoot Servants back in the 90s mm-hmm. um, uh, it was all we were all kind of equal partners equal where partners. with Phil it feels it feels like a band up there but it, we're all hired by Phil sure. so yeah. it's a slightly different vibe with that but, it, yeah. but I'm as vested in, I'm as vested in those things yeah, with Phil or whoever I'm working with, as I would be in my own band. Because yeah. to me, every time that phone rings and you say yes, you've just joined a band. Yeah, be it in the studio or to do some gigs with them. For that moment in time, you yeah. are fulfilling yeah. that role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And how do you um, keep it interesting and exciting when you're playing these songs that you've been playing for maybe 20? 30 years? You know, I get, I've been asked that so, uh, so many times, and really, the, 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 my answer to that, like with James Taylor, I mean, I must have played Fire and Rain a yeah. hundred thousand times, but I always think somewhere in that audience, there's somebody hearing it for the first time, mm-hmm. and that's who you play to. Mm. So it, it, all, it feels fresh every time. That's great. I mean, I do not get bored playing any of these songs. You know, playing in the air tonight, every night is like... It helps that they're great songs. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been lucky. I've been. I've worked with really between you know, like James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Phil and Toto and all these. Man, it's great songbooks with all these guys. So it's it's a treat to play the music. Um, But you really you play it as though it's the first night for you too. Yeah. And uh, if I ever got bored with it, I'd quit. Yeah, I mean, because it's it does a disservice to the audience, does a disservice to the other guys in the band. Absolutely. So you just go out there and just lick some ass. Out there. <laughs> <laughs> now you started out on on upright. No, I actually started on piano. On piano. Yeah, um, I was a little kid and started studying uh, classical piano when I was going on five. Yeah. And uh, and studied straight through till junior high school. Mm-hmm. And when I entered junior high, my music teacher Ted Lynn and I always credit Ted for changing my life. Um, 
said, we have a lot of piano players in, in, in the orchestra, but we need a, a string bass player. And he pulled an old K blonde upright out and, and he set it in my hand, said, you hold it like this. And then I held it and then I, he said, just pluck a note. And I plucked it and felt that vibration. And I said, sold. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it other than that, but I just loved it. Yeah. And uh, so I studied upright for a long time. Mm. And the, the frustrating part, like uh, probably every other bass player who went through that whole thing, is you end up in bands and you try to be heard and you're bleeding all over it because you just can't beat the drummer That's and the it. electric guitar player. So <clears throat> my father took me, uh, there used to be, uh, the, well, it's gone now, but for most of my life, the Musicians Union on Vine Street in Hollywood uh, in the early days had a music store that was actually part of the building. This It was Stein on Vine, which moved to a big location across the street from the Union years later. But my dad took me there and got me a um, melody bass and a St. George amp. And suddenly I was a contender That's in the it. band. I could, I could actually be heard. And... Uh, that kind of really changed things, and and so it, it was a it was a like a few things came about because I was kind of a classical snob when I started. I was only studying classical. Um, I kind of found electric, and I found the Beatles. Okay. And boom, <laughs> everything. Ed Sullivan show like. Yeah, everything changed yeah. overnight, and um, and but I mean, I never like probably like most players, I never thought I was going to have a career in music. Well, that, I think that's everybody starts that way. You start yeah. because it's this magical yeah. thing that you can be a part of and do. Yeah. And then depending on how much you love it depends on your chances of being professional, I guess. Yeah. Well, it, it's all circumstance. I mean, yeah. I, when I was in college, um, I was an art and science major. Mm. And I was really considering becoming uh, either a technical or medical illustrator. Right. Um, and I thought you know, I was always in bands and sometimes four bands at a time and we'd be out on the weekends making mm. rent money and you know playing clubs and just doing top 40 and all that did you do did you do jazz on the upright did you yeah. do that as well yeah I did okay. that. I mean I, I I wish I would have stayed with upright mm. um, you know but the problem was when my career finally started to kick off in the studio there was no interest in no. me playing upright everything was electric and and it's not like riding a bicycle. You don't just get away from it for five years and pick it up and got all your yeah. chops and all that. So I, I have two uprights at home and I sit home and play and I mean, I'm still capable of playing, but I know too many great upright players. I mean, you know, every time I'd go to Nashville, I'd hang out with Edgar Myers and mm. stuff. And, and I just go, so I would, I would, if I got a call for upright, I would pass it on to somebody else. I said, look at, I could come and fake my way through it, but yeah. that, you, that you deserve better than that, and I don't want to embarrass myself. So I would mm -hmm. say, you know, call Chuck DeMonico or call John Patitucci or one of those guys yeah. that, you know, breathe dead every day. Um, I miss it. I miss Boeing more than I miss the pits mm. on it. I, I, I do just miss that, the real yeah, just the richness of, of all that. And um, it, it's like people ask me, they say, oh, who's your favorite bass player? And, you know, how do you answer that? But I say, actually, one of my You're the first guy that comes to my mind is Reinat Abragamov, okay. is his name. And he was the uh, principal bassist with the London Symphony Orchestra. Right. And if you um, go on YouTube and pull him up, it's kind of beyond comprehension what this guy could do. And a, a couple of years ago, he had a stroke and he can't play anymore. And he's a young guy. He looked like he's probably in his 50s. Uh. 
and uh, one of the greatest losses to music. Mm -hmm. I think he may be teaching, but but when you watch him play, it's like I just sit there and I look and I go, it doesn't. It's not a defeatist thing, you know. It's like when Jocko came out, you know, and everybody ran home and they were just like trying to get. And I said, can't you just sit for one minute and dig a genius? Just sit back and go. I'm never going to compete with this guy. I've got my niche that I'm capable of doing. I just want to watch somebody else be like this yeah. brilliant and this crazy and everything. But also, you know, he's not going to sound like you. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's going to help myself and a lot of other players is taking solace in the fact that hopefully nobody sounds exactly like you and yeah. people hire you. You create your own signature. Yeah, that's that's important. Yeah. More important than blazing chops or whatever. Well, not that Jack was just about that, you know, he had the composition and yeah. he had the full package, but yeah. the, today the danger with YouTube of just comparing yourself and trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to be able to how play? How can I be Victor Wooten? How yeah, how, how, can I, how can I blaze over, you know, giant steps? It's yeah. like, if, if that's what you really want to do, then you're going to be invested in, in that. But if it's just you think you should be able to do that to yeah. take a box... It's the wrong, the wrong way. Yeah, around. I always, I always go on like the Berkeley site and, and all these different. And when the guys are posting on YouTube and and Facebook and they're showing their videos of them playing, and sometimes I, I, you know, I just have to chime in and I say, look, I absolutely, um, you know, get you know gobsmacked at, at your facility, mm-hmm. but I said, do you ever intend to work? Mm-hmm. Because I said, that's not going to get you a job. I said, I don't see anybody posting anything about how to craft a bass part for a song. Mm. I see you're sitting there on your E string, just slapping away and doing all kinds of triple, quadruple tapping. And, you know, and all. I said, it's unbelievable. You know, your facility is unbelievable. I've been doing this 50 years and I've never been asked to do that once in the studio. Um, Now's your chance. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I always go, you know, there's no, there's no embarrassment in a whole note. When I would do like Reba McIntyre records and stuff like that, and then I would get into this thing, I'd say, look, if you're going to play a whole note, how do you play a whole note? Now, is it going to be an open string? Are you going to, are you going to finger it? When it goes to the next note, are you going to go down, down? Are you going to go down, do a gliss? Are you going to put a little vibrato on it? I mean, I said, I could spend five minutes with the dissertation on a whole note. It's not easy. If your chops are up and you got all kinds of 30-second note lines to play, you can kind of bullshit your way a little through that. Man, whole notes, half notes, you're exposed like there's Mm. no tomorrow. And some of the guys respond and they go, God, you know, I've not even, hadn't even thought about that. And and for other guys, I, I, Patitucci and I would always just go, those are Nam show chops. Mm, yeah, you see true. this guy that's been busting his ass all year, just getting all this, and then he sits in a booth and he's got a placard there that says "World's fastest bass player." <laughs> and you go, and it's impressive, but. It's impressive for about 15 seconds, yeah. and then you're bored and you walk off. And somebody else kind of doing the same thing next to you. And yeah. You know, it, it gradually becomes less and less. Yeah, and then you see some guy sitting in a booth, and they're just doing like a little a little funk jam, a little blues thing, yeah. and you're going, oh, that's good, that's really nice. I don't know if you've seen that. There's a cartoon that sometimes does the rounds on Facebook, and it's a drummer. And it's the first, the first pain is the drummer going, Brrr. 
and the guy's going, you're amazing. And then the second pain is the drummer going, boom, bap. And the guy goes, you're hired. <laughs> well, that's what Gad, Steve Gad does that. I mean, it's, right. he's real famous at clinics. Like, there'll be like Thomas Lang and all these guys come out before him and they're just like a blur of yeah. stuff. And then he'll just sit down for like five minutes going, <laughs> you know, and everybody's like that because, I mean, that's what gets you here. That yeah. other stuff gets you here. I mean, and it's some, finding a combination. Yeah, there's some guys that can do both. Oh, yeah. Like Paratucci and Victor. And yeah. those guys, like Marcus, they can do the whole notes. Oh, yeah. No, they're, oh, they're consummate musicians. And they can do that on top. It's like, but it's not a top-down thing. It's a bottom-up thing. Yeah. Because it's the bass. But so many of the guys that you see, they're just focusing on the flash side because yeah. they think that's what's going to impress people. And get them all, all the work. Yeah. And I, I did a trio a while back and it was Jonas Helborg, um, Steve Bailey and myself. Okay. And um, I told the guys, I said, I'll do it with you if I can play bass. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you guys do you. all the soloing and stuff. And then Alfonso joined us okay. uh, for a while. And I just sat back there and they wanted to do like, you know, stuff from Spectrum. So we'd play like Stratus. And I'm just so happy just going do 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 And I would sit there all day playing that. And these guys are doing all the heads and stuff. I said, That's fine. this is perfect. Yeah. This is perfect. Just don't, I don't want to step up to that <laughs> spot. I don't enjoy that. I said, yeah. I'm happy back here. And they went, yeah, that's great. So when, when you were kind of starting your, your session side of things, I'm assuming that was in LA? Or, yeah. 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 What was a typical day in the life for you back then? It was it was unique from the standpoint that it it happened overnight, so I had no preparation for it. I, I was in a band called Wolfgang at the end of the '60s, and our uh, a, just a little pre-story. Our drummer was a guy named Bugs Pemberton who had come over from England, and he was in Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers, which were kind of rivals of the Beatles at mm. the time. And he had a friend named John Fishbeck who owned Crystal Recording Studios, and he engineered and produced like all the early Stevie Wonder records. So he'd come and hang out at our at our rehearsals and with us, and it was great. And then one day he brought a friend of his along who was in town and to hang out with at the rehearsals, and it was James Taylor. And James had just come back from England where he did his Apple album, mm -hmm. and. Um, so we all hit it off great, and it was really fun hanging with him. And then all of a sudden, I get a call from Peter Asher, who was managing and producing James. And he said, um, you don't know me, I'm Peter, and um, I managed James Taylor, and he was, had been hanging out with you guys. I said, oh, no, yeah, I met him. It was great. He said, well, he's got a gig coming up at the Troubadour. Would you, he really loved your playing. Could you do it with him? And I said, sure. It sounds good. So we got together and learned the songs we had to learn. And it was Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, myself, and Carol King was our piano player. Oh, wow. And we did the gig. And you could have driven a car through the place. It was empty. <laughs> then all of a sudden, fire and rain came out. So he, they called and said, uh, we got offered to come back. So we went back and they sold it through the ceiling. And they said, oh, we got a month gig, a uh, month tour. Do you want to do it? And I said, sure. I mean, I had never been on the road before except for a couple little band gigs in mm. San Francisco. So we hit the road, and man, next thing he's on the cover of Time magazine. So we were, it was the perfect storm. Yep. But the most perfect part of this was the fact that um, Peter Asher insisted that 
when we did um, One Man Dog, which was the next album, that all our names appear on the record. Because up to that point, like the Wrecking Crew guys, nobody ever got credit on the record. So nobody knew that when they were listening to the Mamas and Papas, they were listening to the same band that did Frank Sinatra and Sergio Mendez and all this. So with the advent of James, suddenly there was this whole movement of singer-songwriters. Yeah. So that's when the Jackson Browns and all these people started to and what, get signed. What, what kind of time That was, was around like 72, okay. right in that, that area. And... So all of a sudden, because they saw like my name and Russ and in us on on the uh, album, they thought, well, if they're good enough for that guy, let's hire them. So we were finding ourselves in the studio like mm. pretty much every day, doing on an average of at least three sessions a day. I mean, literally five, six days a week. Wow. Um, and it was kind of like learn while you earn because I really had never been in the studio that much. So yeah. figuring out how to craft the sound for the studio because live in the studio are yeah. very different animals um, what gear do you bring what do you what do you do so what did um, you do <laughs> um, so i mean what i did was i i i, I the the main thing you that we brought with us was our ears mm. so we were just all really paying attention to what everybody was doing um even a lot of the engineers at that point were changing the way they did things you know mm. they were, to a certain extent, they were creating more isolation because when you think of those old big records of like, you know, big band Sinatra, everything's in the same room. And suddenly they're going, well, let's put the drums over there and it's kind of iso them a little bit and all that. So things were changing for everybody. Yeah. So for us, we were kind of learning while we were earning on it. Um, and amazing artists came through this. Uh, the thing uh, that for me was fortunate was... I, musically, I, I'm real eclectic. Yeah. So it wouldn't just be, as word got out, just be the singer-songwriter guys. Then suddenly I was working with all kinds of artists, and I would get called by the R&B people and called by commercial people, and then movies started coming in. And in um, 76, I guess it was... Um, I was in a band called, uh, I, oh no, in 67 I was in a group called Group Therapy, and Mike Post was our producer on it, and Mike Post went on, I mean he wrote like the theme to all the Law and Orders and all that, but oh. we did everything from Rockford Files, Hill Street Blues, LA, uh, LA Law, uh, Magnum P.I., A-Team, so he remembered me from that time and so when I started working he suddenly became the king of television stuff so I did all of his TV shows and so and so days would be full you'd be doing like a pop record in the morning mm. you could be doing a TV show in the afternoon a film uh, in the evening or, or jingles or something but it was a ferocious schedule um, reading a um, little of everything yeah. Um, a, a lot of the, the, the recording um, stuff with artists like James and Jackson, there were never charts. You would just oh, really? sit with them and they would play guitar and then you, the band would figure it all out. Each guy would sketch out his own thing. TV, movies, all that was generally note for note. But I yeah. had the good fortune of having come from classical piano, so I had reading chops. Yeah. Um, where I still know a lot of guys that never figured out how to read. Mm. And I always just said... If you want, if you want to be a studio player, you have to read, and um, 
and then I, I started going to Nashville a great deal. And then so I got into the Nashville number system and figuring yep. that whole thing out. So, you know, you could go through one day and go through all kinds of different kind of demands on you. Yeah. But the thing that, that just still kind of surprises me a lot is stylistically, I've never really changed much for anything. And for some reason, I, I seem to have happened on to a style that fits a lot of genres. Because mm. if I'm doing funk and I'm doing country, I'm kind of playing the same kind of bass parts. It might be a little bit different kick or something. But tonally, I really don't change that much. Well, uh, I think stuff stuff within the uh, a certain bandwidth, be it pop music, you could take a lot of those songs and do it in a country style or you oh, could yeah. do it in a blues style. So the kind of the DNA is yeah, it's all there. It's all the same, I guess. But there's a lot of guys that that really feel they have to change up. Yeah. For everything, and I've been six I've different been just, bases. And yeah, that. I mean, I see these guys come in the studio with all that, and sometimes I show up with one or two bases, yeah. and that's it. And uh, it's, but but the beauty of this whole business and this community is diversity, and and it's it's one of these things, and that's the beauty of the arts. It's so subjective. Mm. I mean, you go to an art museum, and two people can be standing in front of a painting, and somebody's just absolutely weeping, and then the person next to them is thinking to themselves, "This is the biggest piece of crap I've ever seen." Yeah. Both valid. Exactly. So you know, with music, it's the same way. So I've just always, I've always just tried to kind of bring. If they've hired me, a lot of times they haven't just hired a bass player for it because they have lots of options. Mm -hmm. And they say, we wanted you. So I have to think, you know, what is it that I do that they really want? And, yeah. and it's been funny sometimes. Uh, I, I've found this more with Japanese projects because I've done a lot of Japanese albums. But I'll, they'll like do a lot of pre-production in Japan. And the guy comes in and he goes, yo, I thought about you when I came up with these parts. I mean, to me, this is this is like you. So, and then they play me the thing, and I think, not in a million fucking years would I have ever played that. What is he here? What is he thinking? And so I'll I'll you know do it as close to that, and they're happy. But okay. I'm just thinking, I'm not you know. I, I mean, that that's the whole thing. When the telephone rings and you pick it up, you have two options. You can say yes or no. And if you say yes, there's obligations mm -hmm. that come with that. And I look at every artist that I work with that I'm going to do their album. And then I look in my book and I've got like another month's worth of work to go after that. That day could be the make and break day for their entire career. Yeah. So you really owe them to bring your absolute A game to that session. And, and I always look at it like... Every time I walk in, I've joined that that band. I'm the band for that artist. And I may in the back of my head think, nobody's ever gonna hear this, this, this isn't good. This mm. is, I mean, I, I, I have a, a long enough perspective now to think I can tell what's not good, but that doesn't mean anything because some of the not good stuff has been massive hits and some of the best stuff I've worked on never even got released. So that's why I'm still a side man. Are you, uh, <laughs> are you vocal in the studio about your, if you hear ideas or whatever? Yeah. I guess you read the situation and... Well, yeah, you do, but I think it's imperative. I get really bugged with a lot of guys that when a track is over and the first thing they is on their phone, right. I just go, Listen to the playback. Listen now, let's to, go yeah. in and listen, talk about That's this. That's the best bit. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's that community 
when the, when the juices I mean that's what I hate about contemporary recording for the most part even though it's kind of turning around yeah. so much of my time is spent at guys houses just overdubbing bass mm. and all I can do is affect the bass at yeah. that point um, it's either a click or I'm playing duo they've already done the drums oh, yeah um, there isn't a vocal yet on it maybe somebody went hmm, 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 you know kind of giving you an idea of what the vocal you know mm. you know the idea might be but when you're in a studio with a group of people and then you suddenly hear the guitar player play something, you go, what was that? You know, let me double up on that with mm. you. Or everybody looks at each other and goes, this is a great song, but the bridge sucks. And then the band works on it and makes a better bridge. Or the guy comes in or the girl comes in, they have no intro. So the band creates an intro. I mean, there's that thing that happens when all the stuff falls into place that doesn't happen when you're sitting in somebody's yeah. bedroom just at a Pro Tools rig. Yeah. Um, I miss I miss that, but uh, in in the studio, it's it's that really that magic that happens. And I've given up over the years having arguments about analog, you know, digital, and all that because there's a lot of really great engineers now who can take digital, and it gets the performance is ultimate. Yeah, that's all that really matters. Um, given my druthers, uh, I've been doing some projects lately, and they've been dragging out the old 24 track machines mm -hmm. and. He said, listen, man, it's fat, especially it's fat. bass and drums. But if that's going to be the make or break for a record for somebody, whether they get to cut that way yeah. or not, then just... I mean, people, like, the, the budgets just aren't there. Yeah. So many people are self-funding stuff or, yeah. or crowdfunding stuff or whatever. Well, well, every phone call now begins with, I have a budget issue. And I go, <laughs> really? I have a bill. I'm so shocked. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I mean, the, yeah. the, the golden age. Of recording, you know, I don't want to be the old fart, but it, it's kind of there. over. Yeah, you know, we were there for it. The start all the way through. Yeah, and um, and to see what it's kind of become, because because I always tell people, I go, talent's there, mm. and I still get called to work with people that are like maybe in their twenties, early twenties, and they sit down, and start playing a song, and you go, Are you kidding me? Mm. Man, it's as good as anything I've ever heard. The real problem is. A lot of times, you know, they don't have the budget to really do things. We did a project a couple of uh, years back for a guy named Josh Doyle. And, and the Guitar Center in L.A. held a contest, a songwriter contest. And I think there was like 1,500 or 2,000 people entered this contest. And there's a producer I worked with named John Shanks, a um, guitar player, and uh, really, really good. And he ended up choosing this guy as the winner. And I think the... Uh, the the pro, one of the prize parts of it was an EP. Okay. So the guy we, we were going to go in the studio and just cut a couple of tracks with the guy. Cool. And Dean Parks was playing guitar oh, and myself. And I'm trying to remember. I can't remember now who was playing drums on it. Um, and this guy plays fabulous acoustic guitar. Strong player and writer. And we all looked at each other and went, "Let's make a record." And we just stayed and oh. did a whole album with the guy. Because it was so good, it needed to be heard, and you think, "Fuck this!" You know, just because there's budgetary issues, this that's this music's far more important than you know a couple of grand, which is ultimately you know that can be the we might have made on it. That's awesome, and um, and that happens more than not. I mean, I do find myself people call me and I go in and overdub bass for them, and. Uh, and I'm listening to this stuff, and I go, this is so good. And I'm looking at their house, and I'm just thinking, you know, this is, this is a, a big chunk of their life to be. And so at the end, they kind of go, so what do I owe you for this? And I said, let's go get pizza. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that'd yeah. be fine. That'd be, that'd be good. Because I, I look at that at this point in my life, if that was my make and break thing, then I've really screwed up after right. 50 years if you need that, that I couldn't, couldn't you know, just donate a little yeah. time. I mean, like the, the setup I have here, I can produce and mix and record. Yeah, you, do every, you can make a record right here. The technology here would be mind-blowing 20 years ago. Oh, it wouldn't have. have at, at home. But still, you've got to have the, con you've got to have the content, you've got to have the, yeah. the musical stuff. And, and, and it depends, ears. you know. I mean, a, a lot of times, like, we'll end up doing the bass and uh, the bass and guitars and keyboards in Guy's house. Then they book a room to go do drums. Yeah. You know, or if they're going to do oh, a yeah. little string date or something, yeah, then room. you got to have the breathing space. And, and you know, like, and I think um, I have an experience of real recording studios as well, and being in there with the band and stuff. But I think the gen the generation younger than me, it, no it's cool. all in the box. No, no. So I'm kind of like straddling both those worlds, and yeah, I know that the digital desk is a representation of the analog desk and where the signal chain goes yeah. and, and what everything's meant to do. Yeah, when you're looking on the screen and it's and it's the digital version yeah. of you know like an even tide. Yeah. Something. Well, there, that actually is a piece of equipment. It's, it's not a cartoon. Yeah. yeah, and so like how how particular are you, uh, or have you been in the studio with? Control over your sound, you know, plugging into the desk, a DI, a preamp. I, I tend to leave that really up to the engineer. I mean, if I hear something that's really bugging me, like I, you know, I don't don't feel it has enough bottom, or you know, it could round out mids or something. But for the most part, most engineers I work with are pretty competent engineers. Sure. So I just go, you know, whatever feels right to you, because. From the time I finish my last note and leave till the time this is done, it's going to be going through so much exactly, yeah. stuff. And I usually just try to get it on as, as straight as I can. I, I tend not to put effects on things on the basic track unless, yeah. unless it can dictate the personality of where that's going. But I'll always tell them, I'll say like in the bridge here, maybe, you know, just put a little bit of pitch shift on it or something, you know, yeah. just... Give them a few notes just to think about uh, when the time I mean, comes. At the end of the day, it's only bass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're just a guy that goes boom, 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 boom. boom. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to explain to people sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe let's talk a little bit about the kind of some of the, your evolution of the the stuff that you've used because you know, 70s and 80s was a there's lots of innovation in terms of bass equipment yeah. and, and recording stuff. So what's been your kind of path with that you know it seems to me like a lot of guys that I speak to they end up coming back to the four string P bass after having it's had the, the Ken path Smith to simplicity path to simplicity so it'd be interesting to hear where how far you've gone and how far you've come back well or I mean I've got a that. warehouse full of how far I've gone okay that's uh, I, I, I got involved with um with Bob Easton many years ago, I had a, a company called 360 Systems, and he built one of the first bass sense interface. So we we built that, and with a guy named Wayne Yentis, who built me this rack that I had like all kinds of Moog expander modules in it, and all this stuff. I mean, I could drop down to like four hertz. Did it come with his own engineer? <laughs> uh, the, the first gig we ever played, I, I I was working. It's fun being in Australia because I was working with Billy Thorpe. And, you know, Billy was like the rock god of, god of, mm. of Australia. We did a project called Children of the Sun. And it was Gil Matthews, myself, and Billy. And when we decided to hit the road, I went to um, Klipsch and had them put together a, a bass rig speaker system for me. So it was 
each of the base bins took like four guys to lift. There were these giant <laughs> W folded cabinets. Yes. Then I had like four mids that were almost similar. Then I had four tweeters on top of that and then some other side things. The first gig we showed up at, it was at the front of the stage. They thought it was the PA. I said, no, that's back line. <laughs> and they dragged it on. Billy had like this monster thing and, and Gil had this thing. And I was, I was using these two Altec mono power amps that were 1,000 watt power amps. So I had one for each bass bin. Then I had six Yamaha P2200s driving everything else with an SVT as the preamp for this whole thing. I was doing the, I had Taurus pedals. Um, I had the, um, uh, the 360 um, bass synth hooked up uh, on my bass. And I had a, Wayne built me a, uh, the guy who built the thing, I had this huge pedal board, all these pedals that did everything. And one of them was a sweep pedal. And instead of like going, it, would, it could drop four octaves on the sweep. And literally, we broke a wall in the building we were rehearsing in. I got down to about four hertz. Out of, oh, we were puking and shitting our pants and stuff. <laughs> we got up to about a, about 118 dB at about four or five hertz. And I mean, it was unbelievable. So, that entire system is still sitting in my warehouse. After that ended, it, oh, it went away. Um, like we were talking earlier about this today, is I'm a four-string player at heart. And... And my first legitimate bass, uh, real professional bass, was a 62 jazz bass that I got in the mid-60s. Okay. So and, and years, I still have A few years it. old, which is crazy to think yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was already an old What's used new, bass. What's new, this new thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's the one I used on, like, the early James Taylor records. That's the one I played on Spectrum. <clears throat> but um, as time's gone on, you, you end up using the right tool for the right gig. So... Um, so I ended up uh, trying a lot of different fives, but was generally quite unhappy with most five strings because you get that beautiful G, D, A, E, you know, just this thing that mm. made it, made a moved air, but it had no tonality. And it wasn't until about eight, six, somewhere between 16 and 18 years ago that I was at an AM show and met Sheldon Dingwall. And he introduced me to his fan fret five string. And as soon as I went down and I hit that B string, I said, sold. Mm. And we've been together ever since and just came out with a signature model. And a, which I, I did that for him because to me, his standard models are great too. It's not like it, it's as good as anything else. It's slightly different on certain levels. But if I didn't have that and I was only playing his regular basis, I'd be completely same, happy. Pretty, it's the yeah, same it's pretty much, there's a few little things length. we tweak yeah. with, yeah. Um, but again, um, I play it as a four string. I mean, I really sit there on those top four strings, and when I need to do anything from an E flat down, then I use the B string. But other than that, um, I just, I'm happier in the other space. And and I've got, I've gotten rid of a lot of bases over the years. I've got one in almost every hard rock and, and all that <laughs> crap. And um, and I've given some away. I've sold a few, few bases. But the the stuff I really need, um, I keep at home. Oh, the stuff that you keep coming back to? Yeah, it's like... Um, the Franken, uh, Franken Well, base? the Frankenstein base. What, what that was, we built that around 73. Mm. And it was, uh, there was a guy named John Carruthers. The, the watering hole for musicians in L.A. back in those times was Westwood Music. 
And you'd go in there and Ry Cooter would be in there, Jackson would be. I mean, everybody would always just hang out because Fred Wallachy was the greatest host and owner in the world. And, um, and he had a, John Carruthers was the head of his repair department. So he was basically the repair department. <laughs> and I found, I forget where I found it, but I ended up getting a 62 precision neck um, that just felt great. It was really solid, but I'm not a, I don't care for P basses as much as jazz basses, probably only because I started on yeah. jazz. Um, so I went and talked to John about this, and what we did is I brought in my my, ba my jazz bass, and we made a template off the neck, and then we reshaped the, the P, P bass. bass into a jazz neck. Okay. Um, at that time, there was a company called had started up called Charvel. Oh yeah. Yeah, and Charvel was building aftermarket bodies and stuff. They're part of Jackson. Weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, well, they were by I think by themselves originally, and then they all came together. <clears throat> so I went out to their factory, and um, it wasn't that far from me. And there was a stack about this high of blank alder P bass bodies. They didn't have any jazz bass bodies in it. They hadn't done a run. Right. So I, I just picked them up, there was, went, there was a little hole in it, put a piece of wire in it, just, just okay. tapped the bodies. And I went through the stack and one of them just went boom. It had the most beautiful resonance. I said, I'll take that one. So I took that back to Carruthers. And so in the center of it, of course, you've got the, the, the cavity for the P-Base pickups on it. So what we did is we did two sets of P-Base pickups, but put them where jazz pickups would have gone. But I, I said, it doesn't make sense the way P pickups are laid out because the G and the D string are going to read clearer than the A and the E by their nature of their timber. Yeah. So why would you have it you know, this way? So let's flip them this way and put the lower, the other pickup closer. And we put that where the jazz pickups would have gone. Um, then in the cavity where the P bass pickup would have gone, um, I, I had the very first EMGs that Rob came up with. They had a big EMG embossed on the top of it and it was running at 18 volts. So rather than routing more holes in it, we stuck the batteries where the P bass pickup would have gone Probably in the middle. because you changed the... Yeah, they're just, just two batteries sitting yeah. in, in that thing. Um, and then I put a badass two bridge on it. I've got the first hip shot detuner prototype is on that base. But in... in um, it's like the first ever warm-up. <laughs> yeah, well, it really is. I mean, it's that kind of thing where the, that's why I call it Frankenstein. This is like body parts that yeah. all came. And then it, it, when we had to reshape the neck, he had to pull the frets. So it, while he was doing that, I was walking around the shop and I looked, saw these spools of fret wire. And I pulled out one of them. I said, what's this? And he went, that's mandolin wire. I said, let's use that. He went, no, that'll never work. That's, it's too small. I said, look, let's try it. If it sucks, I'll pay you for a refret and we'll just go to regular you know, base frets on it. As soon as we put it in, we got the whole thing finished up and did, plugged it in, played one note, and we both looked at each other and went, fuck, are you kidding me? This thing just has a sound. That's And that's been on, since 73, that's probably been on... 90% of everything I've recorded was that bass. Wow. And I could drop like the E string down to a C okay. and it wouldn't flap. I mean, the thing just was... It's so two, two like jazz volume controls, volume, volume, Yeah, it's tone. just volume, volume, tone. Yeah. And uh, it's just a, it's a real magical piece of equipment. And it could have sucked. 
Could have sucked, yeah. You just don't know. Yeah. Um, but I found the same thing when I, I, I did an album with a girl named Vanessa Carlton. And she had this record, A Thousand Miles. And um, so when we were doing the album, there was one song, and I think we were going to do um, Paint It Black or something like that. I think it was a Stones tune. But we went through all kind of sounds and just went, oh, this isn't working. But Andy Brower, who rents equipment in Los Angeles, we called him up and he had an old Hofner. Mm -hmm. So he brought that over and it was perfect. So I decided I got to get a Hofner. Okay. So I went to Boozy and Hawks, who were, it turned out were in LA and they were the distributors. So I went mm. there and I went into a room that was full of Hofners. Everyone sounded different. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And so I played all of them until I found one that really just was... So you, so you would adhere to the ideology that wood does affect the sound? Absolutely. The bass, yeah. Absolutely. You, it, it might not have been as critical like in the, you know, when you were using Steinbergers and things like that where it was, wasn't a wooden, it was yeah. a composite material. The, 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 the parameters are probably far more uh, limited in yeah. terms of what could happen. But with wood, just one strain of grain could change it. And mm. it's really remarkable, you know, when you try a bunch of different instruments. That are, the, that the, are meant to be the same. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. The, the only variable has to be the wood. Yeah, that's Cause it. Because the electronics are consistent. It, it, you know? That's it, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, th and that's the real hard part too. It's like you go to a trade show and they always go, oh, you gotta try this, and, like try my amp. And I go, I really can't try your amp because I don't have my bass here. Exactly. You know, and they've got some bass sitting there. I said, I don't know what that thing sounds like. So, you know, I would Flying have to blind. have mine, so yeah. I think that's what, it, what I've found is that you gotta, if you're checking something out, you need to have like a reference point. Yeah. You gotta compare it to something. Cause you walk into a store and try something and go, yeah, that sounds cool. You take it home, plug it in, you go, Oh, what happened? Yeah, it's not because your your point of reference is completely yeah. completely skewed. Yeah, I've got a couple of bases that people sent me. I'm from really big companies um, that are sitting in a closet, and they you know if I just take that out and play it, I go, that really does sound pretty good. Then I pull out like Frankenstein or you know yeah. my the Warwick, I play them next to each other. I go. No, it's good. It's good. Yeah. It's good, but it's you know if I'm I want to I want it to be the best it can be, and that's mm. not the best it can be. Sure. In, in a pinch, if I was on the road and something happened and I needed something that yeah. I wasn't concerned about, I, yeah. could, I can play it for a gig. Yeah. But it's, it's, my heart wouldn't be in it the same way. And this kind of leads us on to a question that I wanted to ask you about. What are your, how, how do you view or what do you think is good bass tone? You know, what, what's, when you're setting up and plugging in, like what are you kind of, assessing and responding to and what do you think maybe people make mistakes with with their own tone um first off i think it's predicated on the style of music you're playing because the tone can be slightly different sure. from, from something to, from one genre to the next um, and i think a lot of it also tonally is set up i hear a lot of guys that are good players and i see like them on youtube I hear so much fret noise and so mm. much neck noise when they're playing. I'm going, I'm not really hearing bass. I'm, I'm hearing, so I tend to keep my action pretty high. Okay. Because also coming from upright, mm. that felt comfortable. I'm not a guitar player who switched to bass. 
so I keep my action pretty high. I always use round wounds. Okay. Um, I've, my Hofner has flats, and I think one other has one other yeah. base has flats. But um, the, the amount of things you can do with round wounds. Um, yeah, I mean, like my my P base. This is round wounds, but they're about eight years old. Yeah, I, I, I hate so, new ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as soon as we we change strings once on Phil's tour so far. And after he changed it, I just sat there pulling on him and rubbing on him before I did the first show because I, I use one bass for the whole show, and there's I don't have a tuner on it. You got to get like a like a fan with like a like a chicken drumstick on the end that just like slaps on the strings and gets all that grease in there. Yeah, and just... just perfect. And then you're licking at the whole show. Like, mm, that smells good. Yeah, right, let's get this show over. I'm hungry. Um, but for tone, I really try to find something that really runs the whole spectrum. Um, okay. I, I like having top end clarity, but not brittle top end. Yeah. I like having a nice smooth kind of just a nice little bit of a hump in the mid range, but I like having enough bottom to really kind of, that real kind of shake too. it. I'm the only guy on the show that has wedges with Phil. Everybody's in ears, and I've got wedges. You're so I love the feeling of rig behind this. you and the yeah. Uh, you know, the I've got, as soon as you put. Headphones or, or, or you know earbuds, anything on, you're in the studio. Yeah, it changes for me the performance. I tried them once and just for, I hate the fact. I mean, they've improved it where you can also have a little ability noise. to talk to each other. But man, I'd be talking to the drummer, and I'd be and the guy would like look at me and go like that. And yeah. I go, this is a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, we've already lost the moment by you not being able to hear me. <laughs> Um, so I, I tend to like just the feel. I've got my amp sitting right behind me, and I've got my wedges right in front of me, and I've got just what I want in the mix. I don't need me. I hate putting bass in monitors because it tends to distort them. Yeah. And um, that's funny that like you know bass cabinets, bass can sound great, and then this you know thousand dollar PA wedge, and it just crap. sounds, sounds like it's that. total crap. But I think a lot of that is the. It, then you're, it's really predicated on who's sending who's signal sending and signal how they're too, yeah. processing and all that. I just try to control everything I can myself. Yeah. Um, but I like a, just a nice fat base because you're really, I mean, you're the foundation of everything. And I remember, uh, I think it was on Phil's 85 tour, um, drums were have, you know, pretty heavily affected on it um, when Phil would play. Keyboards had a lot of stuff going on, and Daryl Sturmer had a lot of stuff going on. And I said to um, uh, the, the sound man, I said, is it okay if I don't use any pedals? He went, thank you. Thank you. Because it gave him a center yeah. tonally to work from, and then off. he could build everything else. But if, that, if I was in like a chorus effect or anything like that, it would all be swimming up mm. there. And so I've always... When I, when I play live, I mean, it's just bass, cable, amp, you know, or DI, you know, yeah. and that's it. Um, so it's kind of a, 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 it's kind of straight down the middle, but with maybe more of an emphasis on the bottom 180. Yeah, I, I, I really like having the, yeah. the fatness in there. And I like, especially live, I like working with a sound guy who doesn't go home and worship kick drum every night. Because that's what really wears me out in most shows is, you hear this emphasis on kick drum and you've lost the whole bass. When yeah. you listen to Beatles records and stuff, Ringo's kit is all mids so, highs. Yeah. And Paul's parts are like these, you know, these beautiful stellar parts. 
Um, but if it was if it was a contemporary engineer doing that, you would never have heard Paul's parts. Mm -hmm. It would just be all kick drum. <laughs> so that that for me, I, I listened to the with Phil's show. Michel Collin is our front of house guy. I listened to his board mix, and the bass sounds like it's on an album. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's the first time I've ever heard as clean and clear a bass coming off of a board mix. Yeah. And then people are sitting with their phones posting, and they're posting. I can hear the bass. It's crazy. Yeah, I go, well, I know it's when the guys say, well, it's really hard in this room. I said, not. You're just lazy. You don't know what you, and your ears don't hear me. You know, I hate when people come up after a show and say, God, what's well, a great show. I wish I could have heard you better. Yeah. You're just going, what am I doing here? I know, you know right? It's not Marcel Marceau. You can, be, you can be sure if there was a microphone in front of you, they'd be able to hear you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, but that's kind of, I, I, but I use a similar tone for everything. If I'm out with Lyle Lovett or I'm out with Toto or Phil or anybody, it's pretty much the same tone for all of that. It's a tone, like I never touch my knobs during the show. Okay. I've got one setting I really like on the bass and that's what I use for every. And uh, just hand position. It's all hand position. Pedals, like when you, if you have been. If I'm in the studio, what I usually carry with me. Um, like we were talking, that Boss OC2 is still my favorite octave divider. Yeah. I've got an old TC Chorus flanger mm -hmm. that I really like. Um, I have one, I think I have an MXR DI that like when I was doing one of Steve Lukather's records, we had a song called um, Jamming with Jesus. <laughs> and we took that and drove it to total distortion. Yep. And the and and most of the thing is to me and Abe Jr. And it's just this kind of Walking. like a dinosaur stomping on your face. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, I have a few things. I mean, I go home and I'm almost embarrassed. I'm thinking about, you know, just really seriously looking at selling stuff because I've got boxes that could fill this room wow. that have like old fuzz faces and well, Tyco Bray pedals and 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 yeah. um, old biphasers and, and and the thing is I love all of it but I end up using it just for me goofing around at home I still have my sometimes old sometimes that's worth it to have it you know oh I'm, I'm probably not going to get rid of it yeah. because I'm too lazy yeah. but I, I turned it was so funny I, I, I found my old Echoplex and I used it uh, a, when I used to do a big bass solo in our group, The Section, back in the 70s. And it was weird. I turned it on and, f and flipped it into playback mode. And there was my solo oh. still on the <laughs> tape on the thing. So it was a, oh, that's cool. it's a trip. But, you know, there's, there's so many things. And I have, like, all kinds of um, things that I've ended up with over the years for... Um, uh, multitudes of, of effects, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and uh, whammy pedal and, <laughs> and um, you know, just stuff. But, you know, if I show up at a session, generally, it all gets reduced down. They say, could you just, you know, just play it straight? We'll do it afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, you know, I love having all the stuff, but sometimes I'll just sit in there and, and plug stuff in and play and yeah. just go, oh, this is great, man. What a great sound. Yeah. But finding, it'd be one thing maybe if I was in a band and I was writing something around that sound. Yeah. Then it would become essential. But for the most part, everything I do, they just want to hear a nice, fat, rich bass part. And they're not looking for you. And also it's hard sometimes to find, when you put on that effect, the bottom end oftentimes kind of drops Gone. out. You know, Gone. It's hard to find pedals that, that don't you know, yeah. take that bottom end. Yeah, sometimes I'll bring with me, I mean, it, one of the things, my favorite kind of effects, 
but it's not a pedal, is I'll bring like a piccolo bass to a session. And, and I'll like, if, if the song feels right for it, I'll double the whole thing on piccolo. And maybe with the piccolo, I'll have them do it with a little chorus. chorus yeah. So you've got this thing that sounds like an eight string, but with a different personality. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I, I'm always trying to find a way of making the part unique, but yeah. ultimately... Don't need to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, most guys just want a really good, mm. strong bass sound that they can then build everything else off of. Yeah. And, and also, when you're doing basic tracks with recording, many times you have no idea what's going to go on this thing. So if you overdo it at that end, suddenly space. you hear it and go, if I don't know how that was going to be, I would never have done that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's it's, it's a yeah. difficult call That's at times. Cool. I like that you brought up um, Lukather um, yeah. in the process of reading through his book just now, yeah. which is awesome, yeah. fantastic. And Toto were just here a few weeks ago. Yeah. So getting to see him on stage do his thing, it was just Luke's amazing. force of nature. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Really. I mean, the whole band's unbelievable. Shannon, I love playing with Shannon. Shannon's yeah. such a great drummer. Close, you close your eyes and you go, wow. Jeff. <laughs> There's Jeff, you know, Jeff incarnate. Where when Simon was there, it was a whole different thing. It was a whole different thing, which yeah. was also cool. Oh, it's great too. But, you know, I, I, Shannon and I used to do sessions in Nashville together. Mm -hmm. And that's how we became friends. And when I heard he came, I said, perfect, perfect. call. Yeah. This is a perfect call. Yeah. And, uh, but um, you, you you always enter a lot of sessions with, with well, Luke. Yeah. I've, no, I've known Luke since he was 17. Yeah. <laughs> and he's changed a little bit. A little bit. A little he's bit. a maniac. <laughs> I love Luke. I mean, he's one of the kindest, sweetest people. And he, and he can put on like this whole other front of like yeah. this real caustic, really smart ass. But he's, but he, he's amazing. He can always back it up, right? With playing. Um, his playing is like, there's, I don't know any, I mean, I know a lot of great players. And mm. there's, I, I can't say I know anybody better than him. I know guys that are up in that stratosphere mm. of players, but when Luke's playing, you just sit back and you just go, oh, man, this guy's great. Yeah. You know, so lyrical in his playing, you know, and, and he can just do the most beautiful little thing and then suddenly shred. And, I mean, he's <laughs> yeah. got like the whole gamut in his acoustic guitar playing is yeah. beautiful and stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, that that period of, of the LA session scene from the kind of mid 70s to mid 80s, yeah. whatever, was just. It was unreal. The stuff that you guys were doing was just yeah. unreal. And, and it's still you know, talked about today as being, you know, we talk about Michael Jackson records or, yeah. or, or the stuff that, that he played on with Toto. It's like, it's still one of those reference points yeah. when you're talking about great music or great albums or great performances. Yeah. You know, and that was like a Saturday afternoon for him or whatever. Yeah, well, for all of us. I mean, it was just like you'd walk in the studio, hey, how you doing? And who are we doing today? You yeah. know, and they would say, you know, Manilow today or whoever. Oh. And but you'd walk in and you see everybody's cases with their name. And you go, oh, this is going to be great. This is gonna we're going to have fun today. Yeah. And uh, maybe talk a little bit about some of the drummers that you did you really connect with. I mean, was Phil? Did you? Was Phil, to me, the most frustrating part of working with Phil was the fact I think Phil's probably one of the best drummers I've ever worked with. And I would always look at him on stage and I'd go, I hate you, I hate you. And he'd go, well, what? And I said, I'm standing 10 feet from my favorite drummer and he's not playing drums. You know, yeah. A couple of tunes in the set, but in the studio when he'd sit there. And, I mean, it's like he had no bones in his body, and his, the fluidity of his playing. But I think one of the, the best parts of my career has been the drummers mm. in it. So like I can be working one day 
with Gad, the next day with Vinny, the next day with Jim Keltner, the next day with JR. I mean, the, the depth of, of Did you ever play with Jeff? Oh, Jeff and I probably did at least 500 albums together. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we did. We were constantly. And, oh, and I, I still have all my old date books from like 1970. Awesome. And so many of them, like it's got like Ocean Way, you know, 10 a.m. And then under it says Jeff. Exclamation because mark. if I knew he was on, I didn't care. I don't know who the artist or the producer was or anything. <clears throat> just Jeff was there, so yeah. we were we were almost like brothers. Yeah. I mean, I loved Jeff so much, and you know, when he passed, it was like one of the and losing him and Carlos Vega almost at the same time was and Larry London went at pretty much same time mm. too. So it was really devastating. Yeah, you know, Jeff kind of seemed like one of those guys that just had this wisdom yeah. bestowed upon him, you know? Well, it Did came you... from the family. His yeah. dad, you know, I mean, Joe is like one of the more remarkable musicians, and Steve's amazing, Mike was amazing. Absolutely. You yeah. know, I mean, the, 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 the tragedy of that family is what's so heartbreaking. Brutal. Yeah. We're back. And we're back. Um, we're talking about drummer. We're talking Jeff. Drummer's Jeff. Yeah, so I did hundreds of albums with Jeff. From all kinds, all genres with him. And to me, I always thought of Jeff as like one of the bravest musicians I ever knew. Because I remember we were doing a David Crosby record. And um, every, we were doing a song and like every drummer I knew would have just been playing time, just doing it. And, and I'm playing and I look over at Jeff and he's got brushes out. And he's doing sounds around the overheads and then hitting a few things and all this. Like the most kind of you know, like a Japanese tea ceremony or something. And we went and listened to the playback and we went, perfect. It's exactly what this one, but most guys wouldn't have the balls to do that. Yeah. They would or, think, or well, the producer like, wants to hear me, you know, play. I'm hired to play drums. Yeah. I'm going to play the drums. But Jeff was amazing, you know, his feel and, yeah. and his humor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was a funny cat. Yeah. Great cartoonist. All his drum heads always had cartoons. I mean, you know, got some guy, you know, on a cart going around with his legs chopped off. And all. <laughs> I mean, really dark stuff. Um, but uh, when, when I was out with Toto, we had one of his things framed in the dressing room. It was like yeah. so dark and terrible. But he was a funny cat. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and so I loved him. I loved Mike. You know, when when Mike got sick, it was the biggest heartbreak to see this guy go from just this vibrant person, fabulous player, just to be reduced to a yeah. a shell, basically. You know, and that's when he said, "Would you take over?" In total, I said, "For you, absolutely." And just kind of honored. Yeah. And learned his parts and, and everything, just to do it as though he was still there. Yeah. And. Uh, Sad. I mean, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, really but life isn't life isn't that kind. I mean, James Ingram just died, and I worked with him with Linda Ronstadt, and I mean, my my gone list is far longer than my here list. Yeah. And uh, it's tough. But as far as drummers go, um, yeah, there, there's there's so many. I mean, I work uh, when I go to England. I work with Neil Wilkinson or Carl Brazil, are both like monstrous drummers, yeah. great field drummers. Do you find that? The when you're working with drummers of that caliber, do you find that it that it highlights any issues? Time not saying that you can play at a time, but do you find that you're like oh? Well, you adjust to everybody. You adjust to everybody. Yeah, there's or some guys that kind of like you don't. Yeah, think there's about some guys it? that like sit right on the front when they're playing and, yeah. and stuff like like when I would because I've gotten to work like with Zigaboo 
And yeah. that, but um, but I, when I played with Lee Von Helm, it was like it was mm. sitting so far back. This, Do you know this. where you kind of naturally? I just sit? immediately adjust to them. Okay. Yeah. You know, I if I if I think it's something that's maybe needs to be pushed a little hard, I'll work with them. But I also like having a verbal dialogue with guys. It's not like you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak in moving this yeah, up. Yeah. So, you know, we'll talk about songs, but sure. but I think you know. To to do this job, you really have to be a chameleon. Mm-hmm. You know, you're. I always tell everybody. And you have to be happy about that as well. I, yeah, I don't mind it at all. Yeah. I always tell everybody everything I do is etched in mud. Yeah, you know, I mean, I just play it. If it doesn't work, fine. Let's talk. And or if somebody comes up to me and goes, um, I had this idea for the bass part. I go, what? You know, I love when somebody shows me what they were thinking for the song, um, or I'll say, or I'll. Well, like we'll do something and I'll do their idea and I say no could we do one more play? let me try something I want something I and I might do it and they'd go I kind of like you know the other cool. one I go fine that's cool. great that's good yeah. you know it's not like fuck you that's my part you know? yeah yeah no I'm not possessive about anything I do at all yeah um, I think you really have to accommodate the situation and the first the first thing you accommodate is the song mm-hmm. and then the second thing you accommodate is the artist and they're, they're, they're that close um, because you want them to leave the day happy. You yeah. may walk away going slightly disappointed, thinking, could have done that a little bit better. If but man, if you walk out and they're smiling, going, thanks, man, I love it. I'm so happy. Done. You go, did my yeah. job. How, how do you kind of approach that initial set? So you get into the session, there's a song there or the band are there. How do you refine your part? You know what I mean? Did you just... Do you start? It's really instinctive because generally, with especially with the caliber of guys that I'm fortunate enough to play with, um, generally we'll do like maybe one run through just to sort out a chart, and we generally have the song in the first or second take. Yeah. You know, so it's not like you've had a long time to refine it. Yeah. One thing, one story. um, I did a. uh, I've done a lot of records with a certain country artist. Really famous, successful country artist. Um, and a lot of them, uh, JR and I were the rhythm section on it. And we were booked to do an album a couple of years ago with him. And he called us up and he said, guys, you know, my road band would love to do this album. And then we said, fine. Yeah, I mean, they're, I knew all the guys are great players. I said, man, your show sounds amazing. So yeah, why not? Give them a, give them a shot at it. Yeah. And so we went on to do, doing some other stuff. And about four days later, he called and said, are you still available? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I mean, can, do it. can we start, you know, tomorrow or something like that? And we got in there and he said, the band wants to hang out. And I said, well, that's cool. They're great guys. Okay. That'd be fine. So we go in there, all say hi. And they're all sitting in the control room. And we go in and he plays down the first song. We sketch out a couple of things and we play it. And first take we nailed it and um, when we went in they said how, how did you come up with that part and I said this is what it's all about yeah I said you guys are great players but we have like 15 minutes to get a to get a record done you guys have maybe two or th- three weeks of rehearsals and then a couple of months on the road and by the time your tour's over, it's probably that song is better than what we did that first time. But you're playing our parts. Mm-hmm. I said, but by the end of it, you think they're your parts. And they said, yeah, we haven't 
ever really had to come up with ideas. Yeah. I said, that's the difference between touring and studio. And it, it was like a real epiphanal moment. Yeah. Um, just for them to suddenly realize because they thought they owned the parts. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so we ended up cutting it and they learned all the stuff and went on the road. So, but it's, and, and there was another time I was doing a Japanese project. We were cutting it in LA, but they had pre-programmed everything in Japan. So the band was there and uh, they were having me and Billy Payne from Little Feet overdubbing bass and keyboards on it. Then they came, they had one song left and they wanted to cut it, uh, to recut it. So we were, so their drummer was there. So. He was in the drum booth, and Billy and I are out there, and the click starts, and we're playing. And it's like a waltz thing in three. It feels like so shitty. It's just terrible. And I finally said to the producer, I said, would you indulge us one moment here, and could we cut this without the click track? And just, because it's just felt really bad with it. You're going, and so we did, and it was great. And I looked in the drum booth, and the drummer was crying. And I, so I went over there. I said, hey, you okay? What's going on? He said, I never knew you could record without a click track. He's this Japanese drummer. Wow. He never played without a click. I mean, for him, it was <laughs> the, like, it, the whole, free. yeah. I mean, it was really blew his mind. Wow. And we're sitting there going, wow, this is really something to have that kind of a thing happening because for us this is our daily routine you know yeah. some songs you sit there and you go oh, well let's do this to a click this will just be more solid it'll be great and especially when i was working with guys like jeff and carlos and stuff that click could be there and they were like this all around it i mean you never in a million years knew there was a click going on and plus Snare you could start a click and do the whole track and then turn it back on at the end and it would still be the same because their time was like so solid um but but all those guys, Keltner, hmm. um, I mean Mike Baird, Willie Ornalis, Ed Green. I mean there's like in Nashville, um, Paul Lyme and Eddie Bayer. So, I mean there's all these guys, and and for me that's been like one of the greatest blessings, is having these guys to play with my whole. The shocking thing is every once in a while you get called for something and it's like the drummer's like a friend of the artist, and you're going. Oh, I, I totally forgot what it's like to play with a guy that isn't incredible. <laughs> you know, and, and it's the same with you know the keyboard players and guitar players, but yeah. the relationship with us with the, the drummer the is the is the big deal. Yeah. Um what kind of gets you excited musically these days? Do you find yourself going catering? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, I have, I Cheetos. Had, yeah, I haven't had that. You go up to play, and my beer's all orange. Yeah. You know, like, are you, are you yeah. searching for new stuff? Or do you find yourself going back in time in the Spotify list? You know, I, a little of everything. You know, I mean, I'm kind Has it of always kind of been. Yeah, I'm kind of an insomniac, and a lot of times I'll stay up at night and I like I, I dig back through things and go on YouTube and find stuff. Old and, videos of yourself. Yeah, and it's not so much me, but like I, I went back and, and I remember doing a, an album with Corey Wells, who was one of the singers in Three Dog Night, and. Man, I, I suddenly his thing popped up, and I played it, and Jeff was on it and stuff. Mm. And I'm just sitting listening in headphones, going, "God, this was great." Or I listened to, you know, old Rita Coolidge records, or I, I did a album that really never got finished, but he ended up releasing it um, with Mike Reno from Loverboy. And um, man, it's strong. It's really a good record. And the guy's a great rock and roll singer. Um, but I, I kind of the one thing I've always 
like kind of my mantra is don't become an old fart. You know, I mean, I, I hate you see older guys talking about, well, back in my day, you know, to me, my day is tomorrow's show. You know, I'm always looking in this direction, um, but I appreciate the past and where, where it all came from. And I love going and listening to old records um, and old recordings of so many players I know that have passed. Yeah. And I go, yeah. God, it was beautiful playing That's... with him. And I close my eyes and I and if it's something we did together, I can transport back to being in the studio with that's him. That's pretty special. And um, to me, it's the community that's really the magic mm. of all of this. And uh, but, you know, it, it, it's kind of like when, when I was talking analog digital earlier. Sometimes, you know, you're in the studio, it's like, I mean, like I said, I mean, I'm going to be 72 and I'm still working with guys that are 19 and 25. You, know? you don't want to go in there and say, well, man, well, man, when I started in, you know, in analog, man, it was someone, because you're talking to a guy that would be like handing him a rotary telephone. It's not, no reference it's point. It's not his fault. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just time we live change. in though, yeah. But if they say to me, tell me about what that was like, mm -hmm. then I'm really happy to talk about it. But I don't want to degrade what they're doing now saying it was better then yeah because they're doing the best they can with what is exactly. now because sometimes stuff that from the 70s or 80s took 10 20 years before it was recognized as being great yeah and that might be the case now like movies you know, you, know yeah. I mean, you see movies and people dump on it but suddenly it becomes a cult movie years later so i i try to keep the perspective that sure. like you know What's important to me is today and tomorrow, yep. and not yesterday. Yesterday is for the people that are like, you know, looking at at, at your your discography and want to talk about all that stuff. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, but if people ask me, well, what records have you played on? Man, I become like tongue tied, and I and somebody. I think as of like two thousand four, had said you've played on about twenty six hundred albums. Yeah, but I don't. I, I got to Japan and some guy had contacted me and said, Would you sign some albums for me? I said, Sure, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> and he showed up at the hotel with this big cart with like 600 albums in it. And I looked at him and I said, I said, I actually have to work. And I said, You go through this, pick out 12 yeah. that you like, and I'm happy to do them. But I mean, there's this pile. And I'm looking at records in there. I don't have any clue. I mean, my name's on it, but I don't remember ever doing it. It's just stuff. Some stuff has very benchmark qualities sure. to it. Yeah. You know, I mean, to me, still, Spectrum is one of my favorite records I ever played on. And we did the whole record in two days, and that's basically one take of each song. And I got to work with Tommy Bolin, and I knew Tommy Bolin from Zephyr days. And he still, to me, was one of the greatest guitar players. That, mm. And he's right there with Hendrix and Clapton yeah. and everybody. Well, I think, like, I agree with you when I put on Spectrum. It's like it's still feels fresh fresh as does Jimi hendrix yeah when i listen to you know band of gypsies or something it's like wow this is really yeah relevant yeah i mean you listen <clears throat> listen to israeli gears or, you know cream or any of that stuff from that period there's mm -hmm. a you think well if it was recorded now it would sound a little bit you know there's things you could tweak mm -hmm. but you go man that was then and and appreciate it for, for what it was i mean hendrix was a real sloppy player yeah. when you listen to that stuff close but the passion in the playing is yeah. so on fire. Pioneering. Yeah. So you go, no, it, this, this stuff really stands the test of time. And the, the funny thing I find with, um, like, I'll go on, on YouTube and pull up Stratus, and there's like a hundred videos of it. And the thing for me that made that work so well 
is the monotony of it. And I see all these guys. The and discipline they, of it. Yeah, but almost everybody who records it, they're good for about a, a verse. And then they start throwing shit in, start slapping and stuff in it. And I go, you just lost why it was good because it's that monotony and having everything else yeah. kind of building around it, but it's got this train going right down the center. It, it creates of it. that tension. Yeah, it's all tension. You know, on that. And I, I think that's one of the cool things about music that takes a while for people to realize is it's about tension and release. Yeah, macro and micro. Yeah, in the song form, you've got that bridge and whatever, and then in your own baseline, going from that minor third to the major third and resolving it. Yeah, it's it's all the same thing yeah same thing. it was fun respond to that yeah it was funny we uh did a bunch of warwick base camps mm. um out in germany they were like fun oh they they were great uh -huh. but like i saw all of us had to do like clinics there and that's really not my cup of tea i mean some people like i went to rhonda smith's clinic and oh, she's almost had a heart attack because she got <laughs> so into it i'm going i don't understand anything she's saying and she's she's so deep and so good yeah i mean i love rhonda with all my heart she's yeah. a magical those, player some of those albums and videos with her and prince oh i'm just just she's amazing yeah. she's just amazing um but one of the things i did was I had I figured out the length of the time for Stratus, and I said, play the space line and don't change a thing, and because people, you know, guys were jamming with it and doing all this stuff, and as soon as you get away from this and start moving, your muscles start to relax a little. You're mm. moving; it's be kind of liquefying and lubricating. <laughs> I said, no. Do it like the record. And I'd see these guys like halfway through it, you know, like this, and veins <laughs> popping up. I said, it's not easy. I said, yeah. it sounds easy because it's not really doing anything. But I said, that's the hard part of it is yeah. that monotony of just, and especially on the record, like when Billy starts soloing and stuff, and you're trying to hold this together, and it's like having a, you know, like you just broke a hornet's nest, and they're all over yeah. your face, and you're trying to be cool. So it was not easy playing with this guy because no. he's such a ferocious piece a, of... One version that is pretty good, I think, is Stanley Clark. Yeah. With uh, Lenny White and um, Larry Colriel, I think. Yeah. And there's a live album. Yeah. And they do... And he puts an octave on it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That, yeah, I mean, there's amazing. some good stuff, but yeah. for the most part... I mean, it's kind of like if you listen to... Um, like still one of my absolute favorite bass players is Paul Jackson mm -hmm. and you listen to Thrust mm -hmm. you know and you just listen to those bass parts and you go the first time I met Paul I just went up stood there mm -hmm. and he's like huge I just really went up. yeah he lives in Japan and he's married to a Japanese gal and he's a big dude I think mean, like six four or five wow, right. you know? and big yeah know? so I just went up and hugged him and said thank you man <laughs> you're, you're a beast yeah those bass parts that would not be where I would Star. No, I mean, where, where, what thought process is creating in the same way like a lot of McCartney stuff? You just go, yeah. How did you come up with that? You yeah, know, it's just like Jesus, my mind is not. But then you suddenly go, that's what makes this all interesting. Yeah, I wonder if it's harder or easier nowadays to do pioneering stuff to do different stuff. Um, well, if it is, it'll certainly stand out mm. because. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, you see all this stuff with guys like Hadrian Faroe and stuff. There's these chops monsters. And it's just, for me, it's just after a while, I'm so in awe of their facility mm -hmm. and stuff, what they can do. But I'm just bored mm -hmm. with it. I mean, it's, and it's not that they're boring players. It's just I'm waiting for a song. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think one of the things that worked on, on Spectrum 
so well is it's really good writing yeah. on it. And there's a lot of instrumental albums Those are that great are such a it. jerk It's great melodies. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's one point on there, I think it might be on Tari and Matador. I mean, all the titles were so stupid. <laughs> That's the beauty of instrumental albums. Exactly. You can call it whatever you want. But um, Tommy starts... Um, he and Jan are trading solos through the whole thing. And at one point, about two-thirds of the way through it, you hear Tommy go, ree, 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 and you hear... He broke his E-string <laughs> on it. And just tore it off and finished the whole song and we never fixed it. So it's on the record wow. where he breaks the E string on it. And I'm thinking, most guys I know, they would shut down. I mean, if E yeah. string breaks, we'll stop. Yeah. You know, where's my roadie? Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but Tommy was... I guess that's so, why you've got two on the guitar, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was funny. There was a, a team of disc jockeys in LA, Mark and Brian, and they were on every day and they had a huge cult following, but every year they would do a Christmas show and um, we would do it and it would be, at, most of the time it was at the Hollywood Palladium and their time on the air was like 6 a.m. So there would be lines around the block at like 4 a.m. and all these people and all kinds of people would show up to play at this stuff, you name it. And uh, one of the last ones we did, Jason Bonham was there. So we did Black Dog and but um, Mark Bonilla was the musical director for it. He was a great guitar player. Mm -hmm. He worked with Ronnie Montrose and all these guys. So it was Slash and Lukather and, and Mark, and then me and, um, I forget who was playing keyboards on that now, um, and, you know, and Jason. And when it was all over, I, I, I called Mark. I said, come here. I, I, he says, what? And I said, this is why Zeppelin had one guitar player. I was going to say, like... <laughs> I mean, it was like this pissing contest up there. <laughs> yeah, I was just dying. I mean, and, and, and Jason and I just kept looking yeah. at each other. I mean, they're lead guitar players. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, that's the funny thing we're doing this group we have now, the immediate family, is because um, Waddy Wachtel is a great lead guitar player. Danny Korshmar is a great lead guitar player. Steve Postel is a great lead guitar player. Balancing the three of them with me and Russ Kunkel has been interesting on these songs, but they know each other well enough where they're all finding their space. And actually, Cooch is probably one of the best rhythm guitar players I've ever worked with, and he's happy just to sit down and he can lay down a groove. And they, they understand songcraft and how yeah. songs are put together because yeah. they've been in the. So it's beautiful. It's yeah. not like this huge pissing contest on stage where you know these guys are see who can pee the highest on just the wall. Get, get the uh, the extra end of the fretboard and stick it on the guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, we could, there's so much stuff that we could... Okay, well, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you quick gear. Okay. In case anybody quick wants gear. to know. Okay, amp-wise, I've been working for years with Euphonic Audio out of New Jersey. I discovered them because they were at a NAMM show hotel room. And it was Mike Tobias's room, and a bunch of bass players were in there. And I'm looking around for, what are they playing through? And there was a little amp and two 8-inch speakers and I could hear everything. Yeah. And so I just went to them and talked to them and um, they uh, explained who they were and everything. And about two weeks later, I called them. I said, I left NAM. The only thing I can think about is your, your gear. And I hooked up with them and I've been using that ever since. I have a combo that's my studio amp and I have um, a couple of different combinations of speakers. That's my road gear and their amps are really great. It sounds, sounds wonderful. So Euphonic Audio is my go-to rig for everything that I do. Then um, for five string, I use uh, my Dingwall. 
I have a signature model with them, but all their bases are amazing. And uh, I absolutely love them. I wish they weren't in Saskatoon, Canada, because I'd love to visit the factory <laughs> and hang out with them, but it's a long ways to go. So that's my five string. Mm -hmm. And then for four string, I have a signature model with Warwick that's based on the Starbase 2, yeah. except we had to modify it because I really wanted to have more of a taper on the body, and that being a hollow body, you couldn't do it. So we did this where it has a block in the body that could be shaped, and then the laminates pulled over that. Um, other than that, it's basically the Starbase 2, pretty much. Um, and that's pretty that's when I go to the studio those are the two bases I bring that's with it. me and they yeah. cover everything I and one thing I like to do is is I um, go to the supermarket buy a, bo a a little container of sponges and I cut them into little blocks and when I want to have a flat wound sound I just take a little block that fits between the G and the D string put that in and then I put another one between the A and the E string and suddenly my round wounds sound like little flat wounds on it and that works great when you're using the OC2 because mm. all your overtones are gone so it tracks Better. really incredible it doesn't get that glitch that yeah. can happen when it starts reading over so it's laughing at you yeah, oh, like yeah. it's going oh you thought you were going to get away with this now <laughs> I'm still in charge yeah. um, and that's as simple as I keep it yeah you know and then like we've talked about those couple of pedals but for the yeah. most part I really like the purity of just having a pure bass, good fat signal for yeah. them. And then you just close your eyes and let the force be with you, Luke, Quite. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So. Have you ever thought about um, producing? You know, I've been asked so many times. In fact, I just got an email from some guys, and I think they're either in Switzerland or Belgium, who asked if I'd come and produce their next album. And I just never felt it. No? I just, you know, I like being involved in the arranging and stuff, but I sort of like finishing bass parts and leaving and going <laughs> to another project. Yeah. You know, when, when I've, <clears throat> there's, there's so much involved in the production side of it that doesn't appeal to me sure. that I think the, the, the projects are too important for somebody who doesn't feel 100% mm. being there. Um, I mean, being, playing bass, you can kind of semi... You, know, you can guide things, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's from the arrangement standpoint. I yeah. love being there from the beginning and being able to craft parts. I mean, like when we did Another Day in Paradise with Phil Collins, uh, well, on, all, on almost all of Phil's records, the bass is the first thing that goes on. Right. I mean, he'll put together like a little drum loop, mm. and then, then I came in, and I had to come up with parts. Right. For that, and then Daryl Sturmer. So that's came. his his choice. He knows that that's how he. Yeah, that's the way he does it. He yeah, really cool. just focuses on those parts. We've only really done a couple of things as an ensemble. There was a uh, an Elton tribute album, something Yellow Brick Road. I forget the name of it now, um, but it was all different artists on it, and we ended up doing Burn Down the Mission, mm -hmm. and it's great. And we cut, and Daryl and Phil and I cut that to live together with Phil playing drums. He had, he had worked out a piano part for it, just blocked that in, and then we cut that out at the farm and at the Genesis Farm, and it's great. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, you know, as soon as I finish work, I'm kind of ready to get out of there. And, yeah move on to something else or just go home and work in the yard or Drive something. some cars. Yeah, I mean, dogs. <laughs> that's the hardest part of being on tour is not driving. 
Yeah. You know, you're just taken everywhere. You know, I'm just horny, well, horny to get home. Well, you're, you're welcome to take take the wheel and go back to the hotel. Oh, that's okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> just, I'm just going to sit there and, the and gaze at the beauty of that yeah. is Melbourne. Oh. Lee, um, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate this. It's a treat. I'm so glad we were able to hook up and do Me this. Me too. Um, I hope everybody listening and watching has Oh, fuck you. This. I don't yes. give a shit what you <laughs> weenies out there. You know, if anybody needs a, a roadie, just let me know, because I do have some downtime coming later in the year, and I can geek gear pretty well. I've still got a strong back at this age. <laughs> you, you'll be the singer's roadie. Yeah. Done. I've, my roadies are always hating me just because I really don't have anything for them to do. You know, it's I, I, the 2004 tour, I think, the guy that was doing me, I think he had just come off of a tour with a bass player, had like 10 basses and wanted new strings every day and all this shit. And he came up to me and said, what do you need? What do you need? I said, oh, I don't know. I guess just make sure the amp's on stage. I changed my, my strings. And make batteries. sure the amp's on stage. Yeah. <laughs> and he ended up like becoming a general gopher. And every time I'd see him, he would go. And actually, that's how my whole finger thing started that's was with started. him. Yeah. Oh, so. there you go. Awesome. Thanks, man. Right, guys there you have it episode 51 uh lee sklar uh, if you're still listening thank you um i appreciate everybody that checks out this podcast please send me a message or an email via the uh, bass lessons melbourne facebook page um, or info at basslessonsmelbourne.com let me know what you think about the podcast anything you think i should change or improve or update or maybe some guests that you know might be coming out um might, maybe some bass players you know that are coming to australia that i could possibly try and ask if they'd like to get on here. Um, yeah, uh, share the word, check out the videos on YouTube if you want um, to get a different perspective on things. And stay tuned for more episodes coming very soon. I've got a few more in the can that I'm just editing up. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>